suppose I could put you into a machine and it creates a sort of digital twin of you. It creates a version of you that we have online and we can run certain kinds of tests with it. We can look to see how your heart works, how your lung works, and we can perform certain kinds of experiments digitally on that quote unquote twin of yours. That would be, that'd be pretty amazing. And it turns out that that's the kind of technology that a number of technologists are working on, not just digital hearts and lungs, but also everything from digital car engines to aircraft engines to digital twins of Earth so we can do climate change prediction. Now, that stuff sounds super cool and interesting, but it's not obvious to me, or at least it was, it was not obvious to me prior to my conversation with Ingrid, why I should care in my capacity as an ethicist, as someone who just thinks, you know, interested in new technology is cool, but why as an ethicist should this interest me? I couldn't see why. But, you know, I thought, all right, I'm just going to trust Ingrid and we're going to have this conversation. And it was great. It was, to my great surprise, there are loads of ethical issues. And in fact, at one point, I used the phrase, digital twins are a bit of an ethical clusterfuck. And that's because it turns out that in order to make your digital twin, we need to use all kinds of technologies. In order to do it safely, we might need to use even more technologies. We're going to use various kinds of technologies to collect data about you. We're going to use different kinds of technologies to run the analyses on all that data. We're going to use different technologies to transfer and store and share that data. We're going to use other technologies to amplify our ability to process that data, like quantum computers maybe one day. So it turns out that digital twins are these really technologically complicated things. And perhaps unsurprisingly, in retrospect, it comes along with a bunch of ethical risks because, number one, you're often dealing with high-stakes situations like climate change, like patient care, like putting people in planes with engines. And to the extent that the digital twin technology is inserted in this life cycle, you're talking about high risk. And then secondly, we know that these technologies come with various kinds of risks, like privacy violations because of all the data, biased AI algorithms, talk about black box problems. You're talking about all these technologies and all this data. How are we going to understand this? And it raises just a larger question about how can we possibly govern all these technologies at the same time responsibly? It strikes me as a really hard problem. So there's a lot of this episode that's sort of me trying to figure out what the heck a digital twin really is and why it should really concern us. And then you'll hear me sort of shift to going from, I don't really get why it's such a big deal to, oh shit, this is a big deal. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that aspect and you will sort of, you come along to that oh shit moment with me. Before that, two things. Number one, if you've got a topic you want me to talk about, maybe someone you want me to talk to, send me an email, em at readblackman.com, em as in ethical machines. And as I've said before, please, you know, take out your phone now, hit five stars, share with your friend, whatever, would love to get the word out. All right, thanks so much. Let's get to it. So, first of all, thanks for coming back, Ingrid. Secondly, I have a basic grip about what digital twins are. I get it. It's a twin of, you know, whatever the thing is in the real world, but digitally constructed. Add some color to that. What exactly are we talking about here? In a very simple way, I'll give you Ingrid's definition. That's not a standard, but it's very simple. So, a digital twin is a deep tech-powered technology platform that connects the physical world with the virtual world. That's as simple as you can get. And it aims to do all kinds of things. 
with that thing, whatever it, it represents. Right, so let, let's have an example. Example. So I can recreate an engine, for instance, an engine mm -hmm. of a Boeing or an engine of a Rolls Royce that can be a digital twin replica of that engine. And it can be used for a variety of things to see how fast the engine can go, to test the engine for safety, to optimize the engine for future iterations and help the teams not only deploy it safely, but also continuously improve it in real time. That's the other key element of these digital twins. So a lot of definitions use the word dynamic. And the reason why it's dynamic is because these digital twins compared to other AI platforms will analyze data in real time and feed it back. Additionally, some of the definitions will use these other terms, which are multi-system, multi-sensorial, multi-probabilistic. And what they try to convey with that is that there are multiple data sources that are used to feed this digital twin. There are multiple elements that the digital twin can do at the same time when it analyzes that data. So it can feed strategic intelligence on how the digital twin works, but it can also learn. So a portion of it can actually learn and improve and then provide future elements to the team how to improve that specific engine in our case. Another okay, example, so, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so I like the I like the example of the engine. So we got a, you know, mm -hmm. a car engine. We might put various sensors, we might use various kinds of sensors mm -hmm. for translating you know, information or data about that engine in real life to the computer. So maybe we have vibration sensors, maybe we have cameras, maybe we have, I don't, I mean, I any don't type engines. of sensor. That's why it's called multisensorial. It can be anything, right? right? Vibration, sure. like you mentioned. So visual, auditory, kinetic, right. any type. Okay. So we've got various techniques for gathering data about this thing and that data is you know transferred to it's turned into really sort of like a coherent model of the thing yeah on a on a digital platform on your computer just to put it really simply right and then that allows us to i take it subject it to various virtual conditions so what happens if we run this motor at 100 miles an hour for three hours what's going to happen to it we might Try that sort of thing out. And then we might get some information about that and then realize, okay, so here's the, you know, here are the kinds of changes or the tweaks that we need to make to the engine in real life to improve performance. Is that the idea? Yes, in a simple way. But the difference compared to other AI platforms is that in this case, that data gathering is from people, from processes, from real time, but also other associated environments that might feed as well as the real time engine generation. So all that is combined all in one as opposed to in silos, like we traditionally would have hundred other software systems. So the beauty of a digital twin is that everything you mentioned, we're collecting from the environment, historical data as well. And then it feeds also while it runs real time data to enhance that historical data. And it's not so only just, static, that's the key. It's the behavior that, of that engine that, that is being also analyzed. So it's not going to be just the data about the engine. It's going to be data about the person who's driving in the car, how they're driving it, the in data about the road that they're driving on. Yes, the, the easy way are. to remember exactly is people, places, process, and ecosystem around it. 
right? Okay. And, and let's so give you're, another example. So you're I see. Yeah. yeah. That might be, for instance, helping our audience understand why that process is so important and the behavior. Let's take the human lung. So researchers during the pandemia created a digital twin of the human lung. Or researchers, uh, even before the pandemic, created a digital replica of a heart that's beating. It's 3D printed too. So it's a digital twin yeah. plus 3D printing, talking about evolution. And you, there you see why it's so important to understand that it's not just a static replica. That beating heart, that breathing lung will generate new data about how it sure. interacts with the rest of the ecosystem, which in this case is our body or other organs. All right, so I can clearly see, you know, roughly how that would happen. I could see why it's sort of a new thing. I mean, this requires being able to collect a tremendous amount of data with various techniques, being able to process all that data. So I could see why digital twins would be a thing now. Plus, it's with all that data, you're presumably sifting through massive troves of data. So having something like an AI to look for patterns in the data could be particularly helpful, I would imagine. So what we've talked about so far, engines and hearts, we're looking for sort of, if you like, diagnostic issues. We're, we're creating digital twins to diagnose, I take it, problems or potential problems, maybe opportunities. Do I have that right? That's only one use. And that's another yeah. beautiful thing because that's why you don't see all these definitions. So let's take another example, a digital twin of a building or a digital twin of a city, which will illustrate other elements of a digital twin. So it's designing. Yeah. Deploying in a more effective way, resource utilization, continuous optimization, right? So as before we used to build something and then had another team that did the optimization. Here it's all in one. It's the design, the deployment, and optimization all in one. In addition, the safety that we mentioned, but also that dynamic interaction and the multi-scale visualization allows you to also adjust how that thing performs in the environment, not just it on its own. So it against its previous performance, we've always had, and that wasn't called digital twin. So also static, just an uh, analysis of how the uh, object performs now, or the uh, engine or the heart or the lung or the CT is one thing, but being able to capture data from all these life cycle stages of whatever you're capturing of a lung an engine or a city or a building is very important. So the digital twin platform can co coordinate and integrate and coalesce all the data from all the stages of the life cycle that you analyzed, including sure. historic data. And that's the beauty of it, that it allows you to have much more accurate representations of how that thing would happen in the real environment. So it's not just safety, it's also design, development plus future optimization. All right. So I guess there are just lots of use cases because whenever you're designing something that's going to take, that's going to operate in a fairly complex environment, you're going to want to track how it interacts with that environment and not just how it in fact operates, but how it would in fact operate where the conditions are slightly changed so that you can make other kinds of optimizations, changes, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay. Makes sense. Now, so yeah, talk to me a little bit about the different technologies. I mean, we talked about the sensors, multi-sensorial, but you also at the top, and I mentioned AI being used to look through the data, look for patterns in all the data that's being collected. But what are some of the other, you know, you mentioned blockchain. How does that come into play with, with digital twins? Sure. 
Maybe one more example before we jump into this, because right. that will help understand that. So one of the most sophisticated digital twins we have currently on planet Earth is that of planet Earth. <laughs> so Google and NVIDIA <laughs> created a digital twin of planet Earth. And two great examples that are highly relevant for us. One is studying the climate changes. And that shows you that it can also, in addition to everything we talked so far, also start to predict if the environment changes, how the actual object would adapt to that. So that prediction yep. is the most important one that that really shows the benefit of a digital twin because the rest you could argue, well, if you have enough team and enough technologies, you could do it retro all the time. We just need to use 10 things instead of one. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the future prediction capability and the adaptive nature to be able to show response to a completely novel environment based on what it learned is the true benefit. And looking at climate change or looking at how tectonic plates, given the recent big earthquake we had in, in Turkey and, and Syria, let's say, that could have been a great example if we had a digital twin that was active. It could have maybe predicted that and helped people prepare better as an example, mm. right? So sure, those sure. are more sophisticated examples and where all the things would come into play that we talked about. Now, no, let's go into the tech stack. And I think that's important. The way I like to describe the tech stack is also process. So you have a tech stack that helps you with that first part, which is that data gathering. So you need a tech stack that helps you gather data from people, processes, places, and the environment. Then you need to create a visual representation of that thing, whatever it was, an object, a process, or an ecosystem. And those visual tools now are, again, more than 50, sometimes even 100, depending on how you categorize them. Then you need to upload all this into a server environment. And that's another set of tools in the tech infrastructure. And again, sure. they can be more than 50. And then you need to somehow put this in the cloud. And that's another layer of tools. Each of these, this is why when you look at the full complex portfolio of digital twin tools, you have more yeah. than 200. And then once it's in the cloud, it's going to be, like we said, process and you bring all those inputs together it learns whatever it's supposed to learn and it has to feed back and you start the loop again so each of these layers has unique types of apps or other types of technologies now from a category perspective the most frequent categories you're going to have are anything to do with sensing anything to do with visualization anything to do with analytics plain analytics anything to do with algorithms that can learn and then anything to do with simulation which are heavy statistics tools so that they can do simulations at the same time and then of course the iot stack which is also broad but again just for for our audience to understand the layers now in terms of types of technologies yes ai is the crux the core and we're talking about the full ai portfolio then you have blockchain that can be used very smartly in digital twins. And there are a lot of companies that are now deploying that. And then AR and VR, as well as XR, can really augment that sensing capacity and that rendering in multiple dimensions, as we just sure. talked about at 3D. Yeah. So particularly in architecture, construction, buildings, cities, utility grids, it, imagine how important it is to be able to have that extended reality capability. Yeah, obviously I see how AR, VR would make sense when you're talking about digital twins. I get the AI bit. I don't understand 
how blockchain is playing a role. Why do I care about the intersection of blockchain and digital twins? Well, it's going to be your favorite, actually, because it has mm. to do with data governance mm. and data validation and data tracking and authorization I see, I see. Okay. of users. Because if we put wrong data in a digital twin, it's catastrophic because then right, 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 everything right. we just described is wrong. So very important so, to have a, a blockchain type infrastructure and you use the, the basic components of authentication of the data and authentication of data utilization and data provenance, which is super important. Like we just talked, you need to know where that data came from and the origin, because if I feed you data that's accurate, but it's from 1971, it's not going to help you right now. Sure. Right. I see. So blockchain is going to be useful because you're making models of phenomenally complex things in the world. In some cases, they're very high stakes, whether you get it right or wrong. Let's say you're creating a digital twin of a bridge or something like that. And so if you get it wrong, that's really bad. If the data's problematic in some way, that's really bad. And if the data is stored, collected, et cetera, on a blockchain, that lends itself to auditability of the data so that you can make sure it's reliable data before you feed it into your digital twin system. Is that the idea? That's one. And then it has another highly related, very closely related benefit. Perhaps our audience heard us talk in the past or with other occasions about cybersecurity, which is very closely related to our concerns for privacy. And sure. a blockchain type of architecture and configuration in a digital twin platform can allow you to also create a zero trust architecture. And that together with everything we talked when you design it with an ethics program in place as well, can help authenticate users. So only those people that are authorized will be able to see portions of that data generated. And similarly, in case of the digital twin, only pieces of information for a specific need will need to be seen. So, so not everybody has to see everything and not every piece of the digital twin intelligence needs to be seen by everybody. So. It sounds like one reason why this sort of talk about digital twins is is potentially ethically relevant is in some cases you're dealing with a tremendous amount of highly sensitive data, not just data, but certain kinds of inferences you might make using that data. That's the entire point of having the digital twin in the first place. And it would be bad if, for instance, bad actors got access to that data. So let's say you've got a digital twin of a city by having deep knowledge about how that city functions by virtue of the digital twin, you might figure out really interesting, powerful, novel, efficient ways to wreak havoc on the city to make things malfunction. And so making sure that bad actors don't get access to that is going to be really important. I take it that that's one issue. Do I have that right so far? Absolutely. Imagine nuclear plants or imagine also aircraft or space shuttles. So it's another great right. example. Yeah. Absolutely. Are there other kinds of ethical issues that we need to worry about other than bad actors getting access to information they ought not to have access to? Well, I think privacy, because we've seen this all the time. We talked about that the, the data collection is multisensorial, right, and multidirectional and, and in sequence. So I always like to talk about also dynamic informed consent, because sometimes people gave consent for one time to be, let's say, imaged by a camera, but that doesn't mean they give it to you for five years to, to continue for the digital twin to receive data or a place might collect data today because they had an authorization for something in the design phase. But 
you don't know if they have authorization to collect data from that place for the next five years. So particularly the data collection authorization, I think is very important. And then also that use, because like we said, this digital twin ecosystem collects data on an ongoing basis and amalgamates the data in a way that's not a typical way captured in any policy and procedure we have. So when we talk about aggregate data, it doesn't really fit perfectly aggregate data terminology either. So we'll need new policies and new regulatory frameworks that will capture the ethics for digital twins, which I know regulators are not happy about, but just heads up. But why is it? Why can't I just reduce the ethical issues or the ethical risks of digital twins to the ethical issues that pertain to big data more generally? Why is it? Why don't we just say, yeah, look, this is just more data. It's more complex data or it's larger in scale, but it's still just data. And so why do we need to, to update anything? So this is my observation in certain stages of the life cycle of a process or let's say a business need or a business application of digital twins, it might be fine. So for the design phase or concept phase, we can agree all that the most typical things we always talk in ethics of any emerging technology will apply. So all the good solid things we need to do for data selection and data consent and all that absolutely equal. But when you get, and maybe even deployment, we can say the current regulatory guidelines, we might find pieces that apply. And if we follow them really strictly, we'll be good. But when you look at the post-deployment and particularly when you look at the full optimization phase of a digital twin, when it's actually starting to function and gather all that data, it's going to be very difficult because like we talked, it's, it's taking historical data, environmental data, the own currently created data where you could argue, well, who, to whom does that belong to? It's the same thing like when we merge a lot of data sets from different entities, right? So who owns what's being created out of all these six things? And IP rights will be an issue too. Who owns what's coming out see, of this right, digital right. twin? Yeah, so there's inferred, there's, if you like, inferred data. Mm -hmm. And those inferences are grounded in other data, of course, data from which it's inferred, where that, those data sets can be owned by multiple entities. Exactly. And so that raises the question about ownership over the inferred data. Yeah. And the other part that's very common now is, you know, everybody worries about is bias. It's hard enough to make sure you don't have bias in a simple AI program and sure. tool and algorithm that's being deployed. Now, imagine, remember we used multi-probabilistic and multi-dimensional and multi-scale. Well, imagine now when you have, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of these simulations every day in a real-time environment and there is no time to do the typical validation like we do now retro because it's real-time feeding data so it's going to be a challenge to design things that can do it in a very accurate fast and non-biased way that's going to be our challenge what are the ways that that bias is going to creep in what what do you have in mind there well Again, because the data is being generated by a lot of sources and each of the data owners has maybe different 
goals in mind at different types of regulatory environments that, that they follow and different types of data standards, it's going to be very difficult to find a unified standard that all will follow. If you want to, it's going to be that delicate balance between how much insight and strategic intelligence you want to get and how much bias do you let creep in out of a mm. desire to move faster and, and get more interesting data. And again, it's hard enough with one algorithm, but let alone hundreds and, and thousands and hundreds of thousands. Yeah, right. So there's an issue that not only might you have some biased AI, that's say analyzing the data, but you're going to have lots of models analyzing yes. the data. And tracing and, it, it's going to be very right, You might have a hundred. I mean, you, know, you and I worked with a client who had, you know, over a hundred models built into a single product. And there's not, there's one, you have to analyze the risks of each model. Yeah. But then you have to also analyze the risks that emerge from the interactions of these models. Exactly. And that's Plus just take the example the, how, on how the heart. The environment. Exactly. Take the example with the heart or the lungs or Google Earth about the climate change, and you can start to yeah. see the magnitude. But even just one engine, I mean, think about a, an airplane engine, right? If, if something creeps in there, it's going to have catastrophic consequences and, and tracing it is going to be hard. And that's, again, where blockchain can help with that as well. If something goes bad, having that blockchain capability will help you trace it back faster and find the source in a faster way, even if you yeah. can't always prevent it. Okay. So, I mean, it, if I sort of zoom back, zoom, zoom back, yeah. zoom out, and I think about the real ethical implications of digital twins. I'm inclined to think that the biggest issue is it gives us tremendous amount of information about how things work. And that level of knowledge is comes with a tremendous amount of power. I think that's the thought. And so the biggest the biggest ethical risk that pertains to digital twins and tell me I'm wrong is just that knowledge falling into the wrong hands. That's true. Or us getting wrong data in the first place, talking about the safety yeah. utilizations. It's so yeah. sophisticated, talking about black box AI. It's so yeah. sophisticated that unfortunately it's going to look great and it's going to be tricky for teams to know it when they have faulty data. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So it's, it's so complex. There are so, many, there are so many pieces. You know, we talked about this when we talked about blockchain that one thing that's nice about blockchain is that it removes all these intermediaries just for, say, a simple financial transaction where I'm sending you money, because there could be, you had said, you know, in our last conversation, there could be something like 15 intermediaries when I'm sending money to you via Zelle. <laughs> What's nice about blockchain is that there are no intermediaries, which means that there's fewer things to break down. Okay, great. Awesome. But now when we talk about digital twins, you're telling me hundreds Right. Hundreds of machines are involved, you know, hundreds of sensors, potentially thousands of sensors, hundreds of models, blockchain. We haven't mentioned quantum, but I know that quantum is in the mix. So it seems like there's a million and one places for things to break down, which leads me to ask the question something like, how could we possibly, how, you know, how could a team possibly manage all those variables responsibly such that we can rely on the digital twin that's created? That's a great question, but I think it, it gives you the answer why most digital twins so far have been only used for physical objects where we can have the real one in real time, monitor the same thing and see if an engine blows up, we know it's wrong. So yeah. industrial use has been there and 
Just a reminder to our audience, the first time a digital twin concept was used was 1970, 1970 by NASA when we had the Apollo 13 mission. They replicated the oxygen tank to try to help the team. That was the first digital twin concept. So now, if you use it on physical objects, you actually have the real world validation at all times and you can see and run it in parallel and then you'll feel safer. For all other things, we're not using it yet in, in ways that can cause direct damage. But yes, theoretically, even Google Earth could give us faulty information and it can have negative consequences. This is only a personal opinion. It's the same rule we always say, good data hygiene from the beginning and not putting anything in the digital twin blender that you're not 100% sure that it's accurate is the safest way still. Because once I, I you like put it in there... It's tough. I like the phrase, the, the digital twin blender. That sounds exactly right. It's both dangerous and possibly delicious. It's not though, there's two things here. One is the reliability of the data that you're collecting. Mm -hmm. Is it comprehensive, for instance? Or is it, you know, do you suffer in some sense, either literally or, or something akin to selection bias for the data that you're collecting? There might be some kinds of data that you're just, you don't even know it exists. You don't even know that you should be collecting that kind of data so exactly. you don't collect it. And then there might be some kind of data that you know you ought to collect, but you only collect, you would collect an insufficient amount or you collect a lot as, as were the right amount, but it's, you know, it's a biased subset or something like that. It's a non-representative subset of the data. So there's all sorts of problems with the data. And then I take it what you're saying is you're going to have to really test the hell out of this thing. So, right. So right now we use it in relatively low stake situations where we can continuously check the reliability of the digital twin and its predictions. So moving on to sort of higher stakes, like is this person gonna die if we give them this drug, where right? we make a digital twin of a person, we have all their, you know, a ton of biometric data about them. We virtually, as it were, test some drug on them to see how it's gonna interact with their, their particular body chemistry, et cetera. And this is, you know, precision medicine stuff powered by digital twins. That's so high stakes. And there's so little opportunity for really checking the reliability of that digital twin that for the foreseeable future, we should, sounds like we should hold off. Well, they're using it now, actually exactly the model that you hypothetically described now instinctively. There is a company in Germany, researchers have invented the, the digital twin of the lung and they're using it to accelerate clinical trials though. So you see, they're not letting it loose in the wrong way. They're using it to accelerate research because before we had to test it on animals or humans. So this is still right. much better to be the digital twin of the lung. And then right. in the future, yes, you could envision having a digital twin of the lung, the heart, the kidneys, the liver, and then it can all be studied. How do these digital twins interact in the body? Because interoperability, guess what? It's going to be yet another challenge, right? Like we always talk yes, with but... any emerging technology. So that's interesting. So the idea is something like, okay, look, you can use these in high stakes cases in the, on the condition that you, you sort of, as it were, you use it in a low stake way in a high stake situation. Exactly. So exactly. you use it as a kind of first hurdle for your drug discovery, something along exactly. those lines. It's not exactly. the final hurdle. It might not even be the second, you know, but it's one hurdle along the way. If it passes that, that is some evidence for thinking, okay, let's test this thing, let's say on animals now, to take one example. Correct. Or safety training in aviation, right? Of course, they don't want to uh, put any real passengers in harm way or pilots in harm way. So being able to test all kinds of uh, mm. scenarios is, is very helpful and hopefully they never happen. But if it ever happens, they can feed the data and the intelligence to the teams, right? Yeah. So there are a lot of yeah. ways to use it safely. 
Now, to your earlier point, if we want to dive a little bit deeper on bias, yes, we too like to always highlight to um, teams working in enterprises that there are many types of biases that need to be considered, sometimes close to 50 or more. Well, digital twins really will hit almost every bias that you can have, uh, if not carefully deployed. And I would say the bias can happen not only at the beginning, like we just highlighted to our audience in the data selection and data validation, but also someone has to decide what's noise and what's not noise and how accurate is that model and that trade-off that we always point out between how much can you take in the accuracy of the model. But then the other really important one in the digital twin is the output of the digital twin. You still have humans that need to decide what are you going to trust and what are you not going to trust, what are you going to act yeah. on and what not. And that's, again, a very big danger of bias. Someone needs to decide what to feed back and what to actually count. And that's a challenge. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean... There's one issue just with the collection of data and all the kinds of biases that we talked about, you know, lack of comprehensiveness with regards to collection of the data, biased subsets of the data, or non-representative subsets of data. But right, then there's the outputs of this thing. Yeah. And you have to interpret those outputs. You have to yeah. interpret them. You have to determine whether they're reliable. You have to understand what you can appropriately conclude or not conclude or justifiably conclude or not conclude, what you can infer or not infer from those outputs, yeah. what you should feed back to the system as a result of those outputs. So... There's tons of decision-making there, and to your point, there can be ways in which the people are biased in some way. It might not be ethically biased. They just might be a sort of a, a blind spot that they've got, right? So when we say bias in this scenario, it doesn't have to be. It could be, but it doesn't have to be something mm -hmm. like discriminating against people based on race, gender, ethnicity, or something along those lines. It's just, you know, they've got some blind spots. They've been trained a certain way, and so they make certain kinds of decisions routinely, and that's not good. A great example is, you know, there are teams of physicians and researchers that have been using digital twin for a surgical recreation. So in this case, it's not an object, it's the surgery. So for instance, complex cases that involve multiple organs or transplant or a tumor that's involving multiple organs. So you have to think about, like you said earlier, why are we using the digital twin? If there was a safer way, then we wouldn't have to use the digital twin. But the alternative yeah. is that the surgeons go in blindly and do the best they can with absolutely no data. So that's definitely yeah. worse. It's going to be more biased. Here, you feed the, the, the digital twin of this type of surgery, all the data they have on this case, plus all the data we have on other cases. And at least the teams can have alternative strategies. That doesn't mean it's going to be a perfect outcome, but certainly definitely better than to go in totally blind, cutting the person and then having to deal with it, right? So you always have to think, like you said earlier, what's the alternative? If the alternative is safer, we shouldn't use a digital twin, period. If we don't have a safer alternative and we, and we find a way to embed the digital twin technology into what we're doing now in a safe way, like you said, embed it into a higher stake thing in the safest way possible, then it can only yield good things. I, I guess the more you talk, the more I'm skeptical about this thing. Mm -hmm. And that's because what you've convinced me of is there's loads of ethical risks, and that's really, at least in part, because digital twins are made up of all, all these other technologies, which come with their own di digital ethical risks. So yeah. there's a bunch of AI involved in digital twins. Okay, well, with AI, we've got issues of bias. We've got issues of privacy violations. 
and we haven't said it explicitly yet, but it's been implicit, I think, in what we've been saying. We have issues of explainability. We don't know how it's arriving at these outputs. Surely with the digital twin stuff, it's, you know, noticing patterns that are so phenomenally complex over such massive troves of data, there's no way we'll be able to really understand why it's giving the output that it's giving. Then we've got blockchain. We have issues if you've got data on the blockchain coming from multiple sources. It's transparent who's adding what data. But also, as we talked a little bit about last time, there's loads of issues pertaining to um, ethical risks and blockchain, for instance, governance across all these various entities interacting with the blockchain to add the data to that blockchain. So, God, I mean, digital twins just seems like just uh, unethical. It's an ethical clusterfuck, <laughs> right? I mean, I don't know how well, else to Well, from an ethical it. perspective, you should be very concerned, and me too. So I'm like this hybrid between technologically from a business perspective, research perspective, innovation perspective, optimization perspective. I love it because it, it helps us do things in one day that otherwise would take us 50 years. On the other hand, ethically, yes, uh, it, it's a very complicated problem and it's going to only get worse. Now, you have to ask yourself again, just because before we didn't have access to see how the ethical things happened because they were on paper and people took 15 years to do them, they still happened. We just didn't see it. So it was just someone in an office having a conversation and still someone decided something. It's just that we don't have access to it. Now it's just accelerated, amplified, augmented, and we have the ability to see it. So but I completely agree. Ethically, we should be concerned. And cybersecurity-wise, too, because the same yeah. way we talk that there is an opportunity, it can also be used, which is what I put actually in one of my articles. If you are mal with malicious intent, like with everything, you can create cyber digital twins with bad intent instead of good intent. And then it's not going to be good. So enterprises should be ready for that because there are smart cookies around the world who are already probably thinking about that. Yeah, that's great. All right, well, good. I mean, you, you know, mission accomplished, Ingrid. I mean, I came in sort of thinking, okay, you know, I could see how there might be some problems with digital twins, but now, now I'm slightly terrified because, look, what's going to happen is that people are going to be overly confident in their ability to create accurate digital twins. <clears throat> Because, you know, you've got these technologists or, you know, who are like, oh, I you know, I figured I, I solved the problem. I got all the data, you know, not biased. I'm good. You know, there's going to be a bunch of hubris involved. They're going to create digital twins in, in relatively high stakes situations. And we're going to get a mess. Unless we have an equal amount of people who are going to also try to do the right things. Now, we didn't talk maybe next time about the opportunity to leverage Web 3.0 capabilities to protect ourselves from some of these things and other types of, of tools such as federated learning, which allows you to do uh, analysis of encrypted data. So then even if someone steals it, if it's encrypted, they're not going to care. And also if it's decentralized in a web 3.0 fashion, then same thing. They'll never have all the pieces they need to actually gather any important insights. So there are some tools we have on the horizon, but today we just started with digital twins. But in future occasions, right. maybe we talk about federated learning and web 3.0 and all those beautiful things. See, now we're going to go the other way, because now you're going to tell me that Web 3.0 and federated learning is going to save us. And I'm going to say it's not going to save anything, and I'm going to be a skeptic. So maybe next time you can okay. convince me that, nope, nope, Web 3.0 really is wearing a superhero cape. Well, part of it, part of it, yes. 
part. It can help with certain things, but it can also, same thing like with everything. I don't think there's any emerging technology that's going to only have positives from an ethics perspective. Definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Ingrid. Thank you again for all of your knowledge and putting up with my interrogation. No, no. I love it. I love it. It's a great debate. We should have an uh, ethics debate with ChatGPT. I invite you to a debate. You'll debate ChatGPT. Oh, that's <laughs> on ethics. That sounds fun. That's that's very hooky. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good hook. All right, we'll Take do care. it. Bye. See you later.